if you want solutions, you must focus your mind. Introducing your host, Mason Hargrave. Welcome to the first episode of Solutions um, with Mason Hargrave. I, of course, am your host, Mason Hargrave. And with me today is uh, Professor Marcelo Magnasco, who is uh, happens to be my PhD advisor here at the Rockefeller University and um, has studied a large range of topics um, from mathematics to biology. And so we're just going to hop into a little bit of that today and then uh, discuss um, kind of this problem solving method in general and the art of problem solving as is the plan to do for all future episodes of uh, solutions. So uh, without further ado, hey Marcelo. Hello, how are you? Doing all right. How does this uh, lovely winter morning find you? The snow's melting. Snow's melting. Starting to go away. Yeah. Um, and starting to see the ground again. There's more coming tomorrow. Is there? Yeah. Oh, fun. Is this normal for New York? It used to be normal. Okay, this last snowstorm was the the, la the the first time I saw the streets the way they used to be like 10, 15 years ago. Okay, we had a you know really warm spell in the last few years. Yeah. Um, is that... There was a big slurry last year. Did you see that? Yeah. What's that caused by? Do you know? Uh, the slurry? Yeah, like those types of like uh, sudden sudden storms. Yeah, so uh, you mean the slurry on the on the floor on the Oh, no, like the sudden there was a sudden winter storm last year. Ah, yeah. Uh, I don't know particularly there's uh, you know some Well, I'll ask you something that you definitely know about, which okay. is I'm pulling off my list here, which mm -hmm. is which is um, one thing that you're really well known for. In fact, maybe your highest cited paper is mm -hmm. on thermal ratchets. Okay. So what is a thermal ratchet? So... Um, Even though I know they don't exist, which you kind of proved, but... No, they, they, they exist. They just can't be the second law. I see. Okay, good. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, you're bringing me. I have to bring all of these stories back from my backup tape. These uh, were going back to '93. Sorry, I know this isn't stored in the. This <laughs> is this is a cash miss. Yes, I have to. I have to 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 <laughs> bring all of that stuff back. So uh, back um, back in the in the 30s, Smoluchowski uh, tried to uh, argue for irreversibility of uh, microscopic processes. And this is something that has actually pretty much obsessed physicists, okay? Because it looks like if you were clever enough, you would be able to make a machine that perpetually moves. Right. And how is it that you can never actually trick nature uh, for long enough uh, for that to happen, okay, is uh, it has an interesting, uh, uh, interesting history, right? Right. Uh, so there's all of these stories about Maxwell's demon and uh, so on and so forth, and these, uh, you know, shows the underpinnings of uh, thermodynamics and what is it that we consider or not consider external agency part of the system. And so on and so forth. What's what's the? Can, can you outline that Maxwell's demon thought experiment real quick, just so, so people at home kind of know what that is? So it, 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 Maxwell uh, it argued. Okay, so let's establish first that we we remember that heat is the motion of molecules, right? And uh, uh, temperature is the average kinetic energy of those molecules, 
and the more kinetic energy they have, uh, uh, the more temperature there is. So uh, the uh, the loss of the thermodynamics in the aggregate tell you that when you put thermal reservoirs in contact, okay, their temperatures will try to equilibrate. In fact, temperature is kind of defined as the thing that equilibrates. Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, so fundamentally, uh, you know, that is the thing that is being, you know, to some extent. So. Heat is the actual physical object being tra uh, transmitted, right. but the driving force behind a, a, a transmission of heat is difference in temperature. Right. So if you have uh, if you have two objects at different temperatures, you put them together, they tend to equilibrate. Right. So uh, uh, Maxwell said that if there was a sufficiently small, sufficiently agile being with sufficiently good eyesight. Okay, sitting at a, a little hole between two uh, thermos containers containing the same kind of molecule but at different temperatures, he could see whenever a, a very, very fast molecule, let's say for just to keep our coordinate system straight, that high temperature is on the right and low temperature is on the left. Right. So all the more the molecules on the right are, you know, moving faster on average than the molecules on the left. Right. However, this is an average. Right. And the distribution of their speeds is Gaussian. Right. Right. So it may happen that a, a sufficiently slow molecule mm -hmm. on the right, okay, or a molecule that is, you know, a, a slow enough approaches the little door where this demon is, is sitting, he sees it coming, he says, it's slow enough, I'll let it through. So he lets a molecule that moves very slowly. And quite by chance, of course, you may have a very fast-moving molecule on the left, okay, it's faster than the rest, and as it comes to the door, the demon says, okay, I'll let this one through. Right. And then what happens is that by uh, choosing to let a... a slow molecules from the right and fast molecules from the left, the left th go through this pore, which is it, it's essentially it's this, this regulated opening where this being is sitting there making decisions, you are transmitting heat from the left to the right, thereby making the left side even colder and the right side even hotter. Essentially, the demon allows the second law of thermodynamics to be violated. To be violated. So you could indeed even start from a situation of equilibrium where the two gases are the same temperature. Right. And then by choosing to only left fast molecules from the left and right molecules from the right, you would indeed create a temperature gradient right. where there was none before. And so from a temperature gradient, you can derive energy. And then you say, I can use yeah. that energy to you ride a motor, energy. motor yes. and now you just got something from nothing that demon well, gave you energy. So the demon's decisions right. gave you energy. Right. And the decisions is the key part. The decisions is the key part. So after, uh, after Maxwell, okay, who uh, uh, put this as an example, he didn't intend it's clear from reading the whole context okay that he didn't intend to say that the laws of thermodynamics would be violated right he intended to say that if somebody's there 
making decisions and rearranging things, okay, that, that something can eventually be translated into some energy, right? right? Uh, but uh, the agency of the demon is what's inputting energy into the system in such a way. And the, and the question is, how much is the agency of the demons worth? Right. Right? So, uh, so then came a great deal of speculation because, of course, as you can imagine, all sorts of uh, 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 crackpots, okay, try to uh, come up with ideas for how to break the second law using sufficiently small and agile demons of their uh, devising. You, okay, you know we, we have a joke at UC Santa Cruz. I wonder if it's common. Do, do you ever talk about green ink letters or purple ink letters? No. Oh, Sorry. this is, must be a very this must be a Santa Cruz phenomenon. A lot of the physics physics department at Santa Cruz always joked about green or I can't remember if it was green or purple ink letters. Uh, the idea was that there were letters written by okay. kind of psychonauts from Santa Cruz who had taken sufficient uh, psychedelics to convince themselves that they understood the mysteries of the universe and that they just had to get a physicist on board with the idea and then they would be th then they would have they would be the next Einstein yeah, and so well, they would always be written purple well, ink or they, green they, ink some unconventional color they given a break, uh, given us a break in physics and now they are arguing other things about vaccines or whatever right, right exactly, exactly. Uh, so they moved on through more through greener pastures okay but it used to be the case that uh, they they really had it in for the second law of thermodynamics, okay? right? Because nobody likes to be forbidden, mm -hmm. okay? So uh, the the laws of thermodynamics have been, you know, uh, said that uh, you know uh, you can't uh, uh, you can't win at this game, right? It's the first law, and the second law says you can't even break even, <laughs> right? Uh, you're you're always gonna lose. Yeah, and anytime you, as you say, anytime you say no this can't happen, you're bound to find people who try to make their career off of proving that it, indeed it can. Uh, yeah, uh, that's indeed what happens, okay? And, and, and the constructions get very elaborate, okay? So uh, you get to have uh, people having this device something like, let's say you have a, a planet and uh, and in the planet okay you have a dark side and a bright side and then you have particles bouncing differently on either side of the atmosphere and it ends up self-propelling right and you know it's like you know and if you have to sit down and actually do all the calculations to show that these elaborate constructions don't work, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And you have it's to do that again every time it, someone comes up with time, a new it, device. Yes. So, and this is this is a device called the Gish Gallop, where someone comes up with a thousand things and it takes more time to yes. prove that they don't work than exactly. it would to prove that they do work. Uh, so in the they don't work. <laughs> so what happened is that at the next stage, people try to remove the demon. Right. Okay, so, uh, and then just uh, leave it to an abstract measurement of decision or decision. And so the next major hit was Silad, Leo Silad, who uh, eventually will become a major figure in biological physics, okay, but originally was uh, a mathematical physicist, okay, considering these kind of problems. And Leo Zilad uh, make a simple construction in which you have a cylinder, mm -hmm. okay? And you have a movable partition. And you have a gas consisting of one single molecule. Right. Because if the idea of being able to violate the second law 
by using the discreteness of the atoms, okay, is to be countenanced, okay, we should go all the way down to having one atom and be done with it, right? right? So he has a cylinder and he has a partition in the middle and there is one single atom bouncing around, okay, and obviously can only be on one side of the partition. Right. And so when it's on the right side of the partition, you can slowly expand this one atom gas and get energy out of that. You expand it by heating it? You, when you expand it, it adiabatically cools. So when you expand... When oh, you expand the chamber. I'm sorry. You expand the chamber. Got it, got it, got it. Got it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You expand the chamber, okay. And then as you expand the chamber, it adiabatically it cools. cools, but you, 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 you gather, you get one of the adiabatic expansion lines in a little right. thermal machine and you get some energy. Then it doesn't take any energy or very little energy if you have sufficiently good design and lubrication to take that partition out, go out through the outside. Okay. So not interfering with the molecule and plug it right back in the middle. Right. And when you plug it right back in the middle, now the molecule will be either on the right or on the left. Well, that's, that must have been a fun contraption to build. Uh, it, well, I don't think... Well, difficult contraption yeah. to build. But okay. yeah, in principle, the idea makes sense. So, uh, and, uh, and, then, uh, and, then, and then you have to measure on which side is it. And once you have made a measurement on which side is it, you decide now that you're going to expand it in the direction in which you gain energy. Okay, right. you take it out again and you keep doing this again and again and again. So Zillard argued that the act of making this measurement, okay, which implies that you have somewhere what we would today call one bit of information about the state of the system. Somewhere you have a machine that is holding the memory that the, me the molecule is on the right and on the left. Right. And you make this measurement, you set this bit to either right or left, okay, and then you proceed with your expansion, and everything else is deterministic. There's no more decisions to be made. Right. Right? So as you do that, you are in normal mechanics, and... And it's relatively easy to show that in normal mechanics, you cannot violate the second law, okay? It's during these branches and decision points, okay, that things become complicated because uh, the laws of mechanics were usually derived in the situation in which you are on what we call the manifold. And a manifold is a mathematical object which, like the surface of the Earth, when looked up sufficiently close to the surface, okay, looks flat. Right. Looks like a piece of Euclidean space. Yeah. Okay. So things that have little branches or little juncture points, okay, eh, are hard to deal with. Okay. And you have to sit down and actually, you know, mathematically do the sutures for it. Okay. Right. So in any case, there was this uh, 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 this device, and then Zillard argued, and this is historically extremely important, that the act of measuring in which side the molecule was, and then setting this memory you need to remember through the expansion process that on which side it is. It's not going to change, but you don't want to be remeasuring all the time, right? So you measure once and you keep the memory. Right. So what right. he argued is that the process of taking a bit of information and setting it to either right or left consumed exactly the same amount of energy 
that or dissipated the same amount of energy because it's now an irreversible process. You have whatever memory you had before, it could equally well be right or left, and now you're setting it to whatever the state is. Let's say it's right. So you're taking two possibilities and the income, and there's only one possibility at the outcome. Right. Okay. And that compression right. is a compression of a factor of two. I see. While the expansion of the wall, as you're expanding the wall to get the energy from your molecule, yep. is an expansion of a factor of two. Right. Now, the laws of thermodynamics tell us that we are expanding an ideal gas by a factor of exactly two. The amount of energy we could get as maximum, the ideal maximum energy to be harvested, is kT, uh, where k is the Boltzmann constant of thermodynamics, t is the temperature in absolute degrees with respect to absolute zero, times the nat times the logarithm of two. Right. So kT log of two became eventually, and there's an entire okay, uh, avenue of uh, people investigating where kT log of two, the thermodynamic value of irreversibly setting a bit, okay, right. was first considered. Now, Szilard did this before there were computers with bits, okay, so which is very, very cute. Ridiculous. Right? And uh, but eventually, in the in the era of digital of digital computation, it became clear that you know I mean we're still nowhere close to being at thermodynamic levels in consumption of energy in a computer. Right. But uh, there was eventually going to be an absolute limit. Right. For the thermodynamic cost of doing computations. Okay. Right. And this was a very long line of research. Okay. So, but the, the, the kind of takeaway just being that. The reason the, the resolution to Maxwell's demon is that the demon to make decisions had to carry out computations which cost the same or more energy than does the actual amount of energy that can be yeah. harvested from the temperature gradient it establishes. Yes. Yeah. So notice that that brought the idea that there are underlying physical laws of computation and information into the foreground. Right. Okay. Uh, literally 20 or 30 years before Shannon, Claude Shannon derived the, the, the theory of information. Right. Okay. Uh, so the idea that there is a physicality to information mm -hmm. and that, uh, you know, that uh, the contraction of a gas and the setting of uh, the state of a bit could be put on an equal footing at the ultra microscopic level. Okay. Uh, that's uh, the germ of that is right there. Right now, at that time, Smoluchowski, okay, uh, a very very famous uh, uh, foundational physicist in the mathematical physics of uh, thermal uh, thermal theory, went for this uh and i would like to tell my audience that uh, our audience that i am uh, flying blind here i wasn't told oh, that i, I would be talking about this <laughs> so i have no notes him. i don't remember the dates okay but i'm just Fair you know i'm just yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm just riffing here right, okay right, right. okay don't this you is, know pretty please nobody take me to task if i forget that Smolchowski was 32 and Zilad was 36 or something okay? right, right, right i uh, uh, this is my Recollection without having actually seen my notes. Yeah. So Smoluchowski tried to take the things further away from decisions. And then he posited a, uh, 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 the idea that if you had a little uh, 
ratchet device right and you made it ultra microscopic to be in the domain in which individual atoms could hit it right okay uh, you could not use these irreversible so you know what the ratchet is okay yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a it's a serrated tooth it's a serrated gear with asymmetric tooth and a little uh, and a little uh, 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 object called the dog okay that presses on the ratchet and so when you try to move it forward you lift the the dog and here there's an essential component of the system is that the dog is pressed against the the, the ratchet teeth through a spring right otherwise this thing would be flopping around Perfect. and you could move equally well no. so you're pressing against the dog and as you move up you go click right click click this is how and handcuffs close around your wrist but can't go backwards yeah so uh, uh zip ties zip ties, uh, zip ties are, are are an example of a, of a ratchet device the tool so you have these uh, so uh, uh, Back in the day when I was studying this, everybody knew how to wind the mechanical clock on the wrist. Right. Okay. And they knew that the mechanism for actually winding the <laughs> winding the, the clock was, yeah, a, was a ratchet. Okay. <laughs> click, 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 click. Now nobody nobody gets that reference. Okay. I mean, nobody even knows what the watch is anymore. I forgot to wear mine today. Yeah. I oh, you. I could have. I could have okay. made the sound of the microphone. So. Um, so he argued that a ratchet device okay would not operate in the in the uh, in the in the atomic domain okay would not be able to irreversibly so the idea was that you could couple this ratchet device to some uh, uh, wind uh, to some sail or something like that that right. would try to you know move it and when it moves forward it goes and when it moves backwards it, it wasn't it doesn't okay uh, the reference you know, was known to those who worked in foundational things, but largely remained obscure for many, many years. Until in the uh, in the sixties, Richard Feynman, okay, uh, uh, did this uh, uh, the famous uh, uh, Feynman lectures on physics, right? Okay, which every so, which almost every physicist has on their bookshelf. Uh, uh, yes, it's big uh, red set of books. You can't miss it. Uh, you Look can't at your miss it. The Feynman hours next time, and you'll see. <laughs> Feynman lectures of physics is a, is an absolute classic. Okay, it was as Feynman himself put it, a failed experiment in teaching. Okay, so his uh, uh, students claim, you know, I mean, they loved the lectures, but they didn't really gain the capacity to solve problems from them because they were very conceptual. Uh, but the Feynman Lectures on Physics is the book that every teacher goes for to read the subject before actually teaching it themselves and right. actually teaching the problems. Okay, right. so it's uh, it's more it's, it's it's a book for physicists who already know the subject and want uh, a clear conceptual way to to, teach to, to 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 not to teach it to just understand what they're talking about. Right. Mm. So there's this a, a beautiful chapter on the Feynman Lectures on Physics called Ratchet and Paul, uh, in which Feynman actually graphically goes through the process of explaining how the uh, um, ratchet device would or would not work. Right. Okay. So he actually uh, draws a little ratchet wheel with its dog in there, and it has an axle. And the axle is connected to uh, a, uh, a van, uh, if I recall the, the term, okay, the veins, 
yeah. actually, to a, to a couple of veins here, okay? And he puts the axillas joining between two different compartments so that the veins and the ratchet are in different compartments that can be set to be at different temperature. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he says, okay, so let's start assuming that the temperatures are the same. Yeah. Uh, and then he sits down and calculates the probabilities of actually being able to move one way or another. Okay. And it turns out that all those probabilities hinge upon is as you move past one tooth, Okay, you have to go past the edge of the, the crest of the tooth before you can click on the other side. Right. And you have to do this against a spring. Right. So you're doing work against the spring. Right. So the height of the teeth times the spring constant, okay, uh, gives you uh, the height of the... Uh, gives you, you know, a, a certain square, potential square, energy stored. Squared over two, okay, will give you the amount of energy that you have to be able to have in order to overcome advancement of a tooth. Right. So for every certain amount of energy, you can buy yourself a click on the ratchet. Yes. Yeah. So let's say that that am amount of energy, you call it delta. Sure. Okay. So what it means is that every now and then on the vein, uh, 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 on the veins, the number of molecules that are hitting from the clockwork, clock, clockwise, clockwise side or the counterclockwise side, okay, right. will be balanced. Okay. Because right. the number of molecules is finite. The number is never exactly the same. And so at some point there will be a combination of molecules such that they have enough energy to turn the vein. Right. Okay. And the ratchet goes click. And then it keeps going click, click, click every now and then. And the vent will be rarer the higher the depth of the teeth or the higher the spring constant. And, you know, according to uh, uh, the Boltzmann di distribution, e to the minus delta over the temperature, okay? There's right. a well-understood probability for an event to happen requiring an energy imbalance of delta. Right. So uh, he then whimsically uh, draws a tiny little uh, uh, pulley in the in the middle of the of the axle, okay, and a tiny little uh, a tiny little uh, uh, spring, and he says, well, maybe we can even lift a flea, right. okay, or some other microscopic object. We can do work. Right. And so now we feel and like then, we've... Oh, and now we feel that, oh, this device goes one way, so we could actually get energy out of it. Right. And then Feynman reminds you that because there's molecules on the right and there's molecules on the left, the molecules not just hit the veins, the molecules also hit the ratchet and they hit the dog. And the probability that a combination of molecules hitting the dog, lifting the dog from the surface of the ratchet, mm -hmm. okay, and allowing the ratchet to back ratchet, okay, and unwind, happens to be e to the minus delta over kT, exactly the same probability that it has to advance. Right. Therefore, the probability that the dog itself spontaneously lifts off the surface and allows the whole thing to unwind, right? Okay, it's exactly the same. Right. It won't work. Right. 
and you can sit down and i have in fact <laughs> okay which is sit down, the, which is the paper write the detailed equations no this is another paper oh this okay? is a different because paper this, this is, is not the paper this, this is this is a different paper so you can sit down and write the detailed equations okay for the motion of the dog and the motion of the veins and the ratchet system and so on and so forth okay sounds like and, a mechanics problem from uh, and uh, and prove that when all is said and done, the uh, the equations uh, the equations that determine the motion of probabilities in probability space for the configuration, which are called the Fokker-Planck equations, okay, have a, a satisfied detail balance, and the system doesn't break the laws of thermodynamics. If the system is is in, in a right. single temperature, now. Uh, Feynman then outdid himself as being uh, smart, okay? He, you know, he, he was sometimes too smart for his own good. And he did a really back-of-the-envelope calculation, okay? Saying that if the temperature had an imbalance, okay, that then what would happen is that the ratchet could, for instance, if the molecules on the vein have more energy than the molecules on the ratchet, conceivably, you could make it advance. So when you are talking about the ratchet, what everybody thinks is intuitively that the ratchet is at zero temperature. Right. Right? And so if you have a reservoir at temperature T and a device at zero temperature, obviously, you can get energy out of that. Right. Okay, the loss of the, you know, I mean, you know, Carnot could have told you that in the 18th century. Okay, it's it's not a stretch. Okay, right. if you if you count on an energy differential, you can harness the flow of energy. Okay, and get some energy out of that. Absolutely. So the problem is that when there, uh, 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 w when the energy differential is finite or small, how much energy can you get? And Feynman argues and goes through a very you know very loose calculations, telling that it cannot exceed the Carnot efficiency for thermal engines. Right. Okay. So I work on this a long time after what's going to what's going to come, but uh, nevertheless. Right. So, uh, so the question is it being how is this relevant to biology? Like we're we're getting yes, into this, yes. and there's there's so, a reason there's a reason why this is interesting to you as a biophysicist. Yes, indeed. So what happened was that uh, back in ninety. Uh, Two, I was a brand new postdoc shared between here at Rockefeller University and the NEC Research Institutes in L Princeton. Those were with which individuals, by the way? Uh, so I was a postdoc here with Mitch Feigenbaum and with Albert Lipschaber and Peter Wolf at NEC. So the, the, all, all, all of whom, which we don't have to get all the way into and, or even close to all the way into, but Feigenbaum is known just for those at home who, you know, are at their Google, you know, able to Google this. Feigenbaum is a Feigenbaum's constant. Um, I think there's a really good number file video that goes through kind of what Feigenbaum's constant is and what that is. So, so that's already been kind of described, but this is the Mitchell Feigenbaum of Feigenbaum's constant. And then, uh, you know, Liebschaber and, and Wolf, uh, and Wolf of, uh, so uh, uh, Albert back then, Albert is an experimental physicist, and right. he was studying uh, the motion of biological motors. Okay, so right. he was studying acting myosin. Uh, these are the motors which inner muscles. 
power our muscles and let us and let us actually uh, do any kind of work. And um, so uh, they were doing biophysics on it. And this is actin and myosin. Actin and myosin, yes. Right. Because and that that's that's what they're doing, right? They're doing a power stroke. They are which causes a contraction. Exactly. So they are they they are little biological motors that are tiny. They are nanometers in length. Right. Okay. And they consume energy in the form of ATP molecules, and they perform work. Right. And they move things. Okay. Totally. So it, it, it soon became evident that when you have a pore in a membrane, separating two compartments in a cell, right. and the pore lets some molecules uh, through and mm -hmm. not some other molecules, that we are looking at some kind of scenario very uh, looking very much like a Maxwell demon. Right. Right. And therefore, understanding the loss of thermodynamics, okay, in terms of Maxwell demon line constructions for ion channels was uh, it was a very early thought, right? Okay, for the case of uh, of motors, okay, so a number of people were uh, thinking, okay, well, this is a little thermodynamic machine, but it's operating at you know room temperature, thermal noise, okay, individual molecules subject to fluctuations. What are the laws judging this? So, in any case, I was working with, uh, with uh, in my capacity, working with Lipschauer at NEC, okay, uh, 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 um, they were uh, doing all these uh, beautiful, uh, beautiful experiments, uh, and uh, I was asked to uh, analyze data, okay, so I was, you know, doing video analysis of, uh, you know, uh, microscopic filaments fluctuating and the like, I mean, well, as a theorist, I was thinking, okay, so what, what can I do as a theorist about this? And then what hit me was that in this domain, we did not really have a standard of comparison. Like if you are talking about macroscopic motors, you always have Carnot's engine and all of these classical uh, constructions that tell you what the ideal efficiencies would be. And then you can then talk about whether this is efficient or, efi or not efficient. Right. And it kept bothering me that people were talking about how hugely efficient these motors work. And there was no standard of, I mean, how do you know that they're efficient? Okay. How do you measure efficiency? Right. What, what do you measure it against? Okay. Uh, so uh, I remembered the story of the Feynman, uh, of the Feynman Raj. Okay. And uh, then I tried to derive some number of, uh, I, I tried to derive a, a simple models in which I wasn't having two temperatures, so people had already remarked that maybe a ratchet-like construction works, but Feynman's ratchet is a two-temperature ratchet. Right. Okay, and uh, it it wasn't very plausible to say we have two different temperatures. Temperatures inside of a biological context where everything's it, kind of... Well, inside a biological molecule. Right. So we are talking about the separation of nanometers, okay, between one side of the molecule and the other. It's not very plausible to say one side will have tens of degree Kelvin difference. Right. You know, that's not going to work. Right. So, uh, but there was something still attractive about the ratchet construction, okay? And uh, uh, then uh, I realized that what we also associate with ratchets is the careful way in which we drive them. So uh, if you're thinking of the Feynman's thermal ratchet, the thermal part is going ta -ta -ta, you know, to the left, to the right, to the left, to the right in a completely regular fashion. Right. And it's driven by what we call white noise. Right. And if you sit down and you try to prove that 
you know, using a white noise source, okay, you can prove that the ratchet doesn't work. Right. However, as we know from mechanical watches and other things, any time that you do a simple oscillation, you make the ratchet work. Right. So a coordinated motion, okay, will, you know, will oper properly operate the ratchet. So right. the question is, if I have a driving force that oscillates in a non-white fashion, can I get energy out of that? How much energy can I get? And so on and so forth. And that's what the 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 the, the paper I wrote, okay, right. force thermal ratchets, and uh, trying to analyze that situation from a very theoretical point of view. Okay, I mean just l claiming very a very loose. Uh, basis on biology, okay? Right. I mean, I, I was inspired by biology because I was, as a, as a fact, a member of the experimental team doing the analysis of right. the actual biological reality, right? Right. But I was trying to get something like this ideal construction like the Carnot engine and, and, and so on and, and so forth. I, I have to say, I become the absolute thorn in the side of the of the Rockefeller PhD program because whenever the whenever I see a gradient established. Whenever I see any, and a lot of these things, it's really interesting to watch. Like they're always just like, oh yeah, the, you know, a gradient's there, or often the conversation starts with the gradient already established, or it starts with some complicated, you know, some huge complicated diagram of how the gradient was established, and sometimes it'll be missing the ATP in the in the pathway, mm -hmm. and it'll just be like, oh well, this pushes this here, and this pushes that there, and you know, you get end up with these really, um, especially in the cell biology class I took, I was the absolute oh, yeah. pain. Because and I would somebody, always ask somebody's always paying for it, okay? Right, and it's, it's, it's the it's no very free important, lunch it's very, important, it's very important to know who's paying the bill and where does right. it come from in biology. And right? so my question is always, and it's normally there's an answer, but it's funny that it wasn't isn't initially presented, which is normally the answer is oh well there's ATP or GTP or something, um, you know, somewhere uh, that was as you would say forcing the ratchet mm -hmm. forcing the ratchet to move so um well that, that that's that's that question do you mind if we move on to something kind of more on the on sure move, move down the list um i think one one thing uh, although I, I i want to make a historical comment historical okay? comment uh, which just to close the arc of uh, our conversation so it turns out that that paper became uh, much to my surprise, okay? Because I was, you know, I, I thought that I was on my little corner of the world, just writing my only little theoretical paper, okay? Basically to satisfy myself that there was something to be said, okay? And it, uh, you know, it had more, more repercussions than I thought it would have. And then as a result, I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of assigned uh, uh, the duty at Physical Review Letters, which was a, you know, the That's a big journal. prestigious, at the time, the touchstone paper in, in physics, okay. In fact, it, in fact, it's so, it's so well known that people just call it PRL. They know PRL. exactly what you're talking about. So, uh, so I started getting a steady stream of all of the correspondence on people who were trying to violate the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> you started getting the green, green ink letters. So uh, for uh, the better part of a year after my ratchet construction, okay, I was then spending a not inconsiderate amount of my time refuting uh, uh, perpetuum mobile constructions, some of which got to be clever and elaborate. Right. Right. But once again, hiding where the source of the energy was. 
okay? Because it became sort of like the same game you're mentioning, okay? In biology, if you are taking the thermodynamic, the thermodynamic view, you want to know who's paying for this. Process, who's paying for this? Okay, and then when you have a, you know a self-propelling planet, okay, that is propelling because the molecules of the atmosphere bounce harder on the back than on the front, and so it keeps moving. You want to know how the, how uh, you know how does this happen or how does right. it equilibrate or whatever. So in uh, in any case, at some point, I had to beg off of this duty and say, please, please, okay, I can't, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. Okay. It's it's, it's just too much. I've been part of a Discord community where where um, we were discussing a lot of general relativity, and people kept trying to come up with general or uh, um, even just special relativity counterexamples. Um, and you know, there are, there are a lot these elaborate things, or you know, they're kind of you know, you have this cylinder of this size and this cylinder of this other size, and they you know, you know, run at each other and can this cylinder of this length fit into this cylinder of that length? And you put a plate at the end that breaks and if, if you know, it goes all yeah. the way through. And there, ha there has been no, never there has been a great advancement in physics on the thrust of a, an elaborate construction. Right. Okay. All of the advances in physics have been a very simple, very clear thing. Okay. Then you understand what the issues are and then you proceed. Absolutely. Okay. Elaborate constructions. Okay. Have too much freedom to hide uh, accounting uh, mismanagement. Another, um, another, another topic of, of potential, we'll, we'll, we'll move on to animals because animals are fun. So you spend a lot of your time thinking about dolphins talking to each other. Yeah. Um, and maybe you could, so, so, and one interesting thing that you proposed, for instance, is, well, first, first of all, I, I should ask, like, how is it that dolphins communicate? What's the way that they, what's the modality of communication? Just, just like, well, first you have to establish that they communicate, okay? Uh, so okay. uh, every 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 being, okay, from the lowliest bacteria up to uh, up to the philosopher. Somebody once quietly remarked that life has evolved from the bacterium to the philosopher, says the philosopher. And um, so uh, uh, Everything in that range, okay, communicates. Bacteria communicate their quorum, they emit signals, okay, let's do quorum sensing and synchronize themselves, and all sorts of stuff, okay? So communication is pervasive in, 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 in life. The question is how do dolphins communicate, okay? Uh, and that is a, that is a great uh, question, okay? If you observe them, uh, you realize that dolphins have a, a lot of very keen body language, right? So they have a lot of, uh, they, they can sense each other. What, it, what type of body language do you see up there? Uh, it's the subtlety of the motion that's really striking. So for instance, we, uh, we do this uh, study in the field in which we watch them as they are bow riding in front of the boat. Right. Right. And as the, the dolphins approach, okay, they approach the boat. Uh, they like to do this because, you know, they, it's fun, okay, they're surfing under the water and apparently they like having fun, okay. Uh, liking to have fun appears more to be, you know, a human trait, although it's very hard to demonstrate. How right. do I 
demonstrate that dolphins like having fun. Okay. One thing I'm really interested in is the is the play circuit. So and they, 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 they have they mice have play circuits. Yeah, so, so mammals have play circuits. Uh, absolutely, and, and, and uh, the, the interesting thing is that dolphins are so outrageously efficient at what they do. Right. Okay, that they have a lot of free time. Okay, right. and uh, they spend their free time, uh, you know, enjoying the fruits of life. And, yeah, you know, I mean, just having fun. Yeah. Uh, apparently, okay, yeah. but this is this is very, you know. Right. Okay. In any case, one thing that I can rigorously document is that as two dolphins approach the boat, okay, in order to join to join a, a bow riding bout, okay, they uh, they extremely often and these we have many many documented examples. They come and they go. One goes under and they cross each other. One goes under and the goes over and then they reverse themselves and then they end up looking in the direction of the boat. So let me explain that again, okay? Imagine I'm in the boat and I'm moving in that direction. Yeah. Okay? So the dolphins are coming from the direction in which I'm moving. Right. Therefore, they can't bow right in this direction. They're going to have to turn around and go like that. Right? I see. Yeah. So the way they do it is actually that it involves both of them. One of them goes under, one of them goes over, okay, to the other side, and then they turn and point forward. Oh, that's fun. The, the, we have never ever seen them hit each other except on purpose, apparently on purpose. You know, I mean, at the speed, the dolphins are large. Right. Okay? So, uh, uh, tursiops, uh, which we. Like seven feet long? Ten feet long? Uh, uh, dolphin, uh, tursiops gets to be nine feet long and six, seven hundred pounds. Okay, of pure muscle, okay, it comes at you in the water, okay, and it has an enormous amount of. Right. How is it that it never hits you? Okay, I have had dolphins swimming in front of me and literally go inches in front of my face. Right. Okay, they don't hit. They don't hit each other. They have this extremely precise body control. Okay. Right. In a medium that is dominated by inertia, so it has all the difficulties of oh. ice skating. Right. Right. Which we won't get into. <laughs> Which we won't get into, okay? But it has all the difficulties of being uh, trying to do something that's dominated by inertia. Right. As a matter of fact, uh, reproduction is tough for cetaceans. Right. Because they are slippery and they're moving, okay, and they're massive. So, how do you align them? Mm. Right? So, it's a, it, it's a thing, okay? It's, right. a, it's, a, it's a problem. So, uh, so, they have this massive amount of body language communication, okay? Presumably, they have an exquisite sensitivity in the skin for currents and close contacts and what or not. I don't think that that has been proved in any degree of detail in the literature, but it, it's sort of evidence from looking at them. Right. But they have this uh, uh, grace of motion, okay, this grace of coordinated motion that you need to really, uh, uh, you, you experience it when you see it, but then you have to. Uh, try to quantitate by by doing a lot of computational analysis and showing that these are not randomly moving things, right? Uh, so uh, so they have this this visual mechanical you know body language thing. They, they definitely communicate verbally or vo vocally, right? Okay, although vocally is a misnomer, of course, because vocalization comes from vocal, which means your mouth. Uh, the dolphins emit sounds using the analog of the nasal cavity that has migrated to the back and is the blowhole. 
Mm. Okay, so they have the mouth in the front and the nose in back. Okay, but here behind the the blowhole is the nose. The blowhole is the is the is the nostrils. The, the nostrils and it's bilateral. Okay, and that's why it has two sides and either side can make sound. Right. So they can bifurcate. Oh. So uh, so technically we should be calling both these vocalizations. We should be calling them nasalizations. Nasalization, but you know it sounds kind of nasty. So, so we still talk about dolphin vocalizations, and we all know what we mean, right? Right, right. right. But, uh, but there's this, uh, you know, there's this. Uh, in any case, they have they produce uh, uh, sounds that are either uh, either this whistle-like object, okay? Yeah. I don't know if it will be. I'm, I'm hoping. Right, right. stuff, okay. And they have these other very sharp, impulsive sounds because they also have a collocation and they see with sound like bats. In case it doesn't make it on the, on the microphone, uh, I should say Marcelo could do incredible dolphin impressions that are actually uncanny. Um, so it just, it's just let so you know what he was doing there in case the audio doesn't. No, no, I think I think the audio would probably get. I hope so. <laughs> so. Uh, in any case, so the dolphins. Uh, so how did you learn to do that? Just to stack on real quick. Just just sitting at home. What was the first time? I don't know. <laughs> so in any case, uh, the the thing is that they can produce these two different kinds of sounds that they mix. Okay, one of them is very specifically used in multiple contexts. Okay, so they can use these impulsive click-like sounds. In order to echolocate, right? Okay, and uh, they can uh, also emit these click sounds at a very high repetition rate. Mm -hmm. And when that happens, okay, if the repetition rate is fast enough to be in the audible range, we hear that as some kind of a creaky door kind of sound, and that's one of the other sounds that we associate with the, the, the sounds as well. Right. Uh, they uh, so yes, they they use their vocalizations are extremely complex. Right. Okay. And uh, for you know the animal kingdom. Right. Right. And the the thing that you know sort of bothers me about this complexity is that sometimes the vocalizations have very, very fine scale uh, little features that I don't know if it's just, uh, you know, an irregularity in vocal inflection, okay, or if it's actually contains information on the field. We don't know right. that. In fact, in fact, you also see, um, uh, and, and can we talk about the accent part where it goes, or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm just making sure, I just don't know what's published or not published. Or what I uh, no, no, there's a lot of, the, there's an enormous amount of research that's on the on the literature, okay, okay. Okay, not just not just from from. Uh, I right. should I, I should mention that I've worked with this extensively together with Diana Reese. Right. Okay. Who, by the way, I would eventually like to get on here. Uh, absolutely, I'm pretty sure that she's uh, she she'll be happy to. Uh, but she's at uh, Hunter College, just uh, literally. Uh, yeah. What four hundred meters, five hundred meters? Very close. From here, okay. So we have a very. A very close collaboration. I know there's a Shakespeare coffee. That's my favorite uh, spots. So, uh, so they have these elaborate vocalizations, and uh, some of them uh, uh, can 
means studies, you know, I mean, people that are fascinated with dolphins and the speech. They have access, right? Like, in some, 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 some regions they, they go up, in some they, regions they go down. They, 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 have, they have access, they have regional variabilities in, in a lot of things. Uh, they, I get asked this a lot. Mm -hmm. I cannot see that they have recognizable voices, at least not in my hands. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, I don't see their vocalizations having distinct timbres from different individuals. And you can see that if, if you spectrogram my voice versus your voice. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Right. Uh, we can we we can trivially recognize you from me. Okay, in uh, in, uh, in sonograms, okay, right. because of the different uh, uh, locations of the formants of speech, mm. okay, which have to do with the detailed geometry of our throats, okay, and from there we uh, because the way we make sound is we have a, a, our a, our a vocal cords, okay, right. A, but that's just the beginning of it. The vocal cords vibrate, but then they vibrate in front of a tube that has resonances. Right. As the resonances, you know, as the resonances are reflected back, they entrain the the, 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 the vibrations of the vocal cord. Right. Okay. So there is all this complex back and forth in which the vocal cord itself, together with the uh, together with the cavity and several more cavities whose geometry were constantly changing. Right. Okay. That gives rise to the, the very complex patterns of our, of our speech. Absolutely. Uh, the imprint of the shape of our throat is there in the sound for me. Mm. And we can pick it up. Right. And for instance, we have sexual dimorphisms in the way that, uh, that we clearly we have the, the throats of different sizes. For males and females, right, and that it makes male and female voices uh, to be set apart from others, right. So that you know, uh, a fair proportion of male and female voices can be recognized from one another. Totally, uh, we don't really see this in dolphins. Okay, I have never seen a, an actual uh, recognizable difference. Okay. To the extent that we have voices in humans, okay, right. in male and female dolphins, okay, they have the same frequency ranges, okay, they, they don't have the throats of the sizes because they are not actually speaking with the throats. Mm. They're actually making whistles with the equivalent of the nasal cavity, okay, which I would say are more akin to a, a, a horse's name, mm. okay, than they are to the way we produce, you know. Yeah. Oh, so in any case, so so there's this uh, rich repertoire, and they make all sorts of sounds. Okay, right. but uh, there are some sounds that uh, recognizable come out the same. Uh, and, and it should be interesting that we also we also don't. It's not like it's not like the same way where I speak and it fills the whole room. So uh, the vocal emissions have directionality, just like ours do. Okay, right. but. We uh, communicate in a frequency range in which the acoustical shadow of our head is not that important. Right. Okay. But dolphins communicate at very high frequency range. Right. Okay. Uh, and uh, in that frequency range, the wavelength of sound compared with, to the bodies is significant. Right. And so uh, their vocalizations are affected 
And, and this is an, an extremely important point that I don't think is fully taken care of in, in the field, that uh, depending on the orientation of the dolphin to you, the vocalization sounds different. Okay. You have a fun story to, to, to talk about how you've kind of figured that out. No, I mean, everybody, everybody, normally, normally, I mean, we know that this is a fact, okay, so for instance, people have reconstructed the, the acoustical uh, cone uh, in, in emitting uh, clicks, okay, that right. an orca has or whales have, okay, so it, we know it's a beamforming pattern, right, okay, but then in practice, what I'm saying is, if I'm recording dolphins and I just put the microphone in the water, and if I don't see the orientation of the dolphin with respect to me, right. then I might be missing something. Mm. Okay, so, so, so it's, it's important to have both positional information and auditory information. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yes. I mean, if you if you wanted to completely reconstruct what they are saying, yes. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, yes. So uh, this is relevant because the the clicks of the collocation beam, okay, are much more narrowly focused than the than the than the whistles. Right. And as a uh, as a result, it, we have recorded them numerous times, okay, by phonating clicks together with whistles. Right. Okay. So that we don't know we believe that it might be a part of you know the, the, the communication stream, okay, like Consonants and vowels are, are are such a part, okay? And uh, we, uh, if you're recording dolphin from the back, you don't hear the click going on together with the whistle, right? Okay, so uh, you just hear the click. You, you, no, you just, just hear the whistle. whistle. You just hear the whistle and not the clicks, okay? Mm -hmm. So. Oh, imagine the clicks are directional. So imagine that if I were talking to you, okay, if I'm looking at you, you hear my full speech, vowels and consonants, okay. Right. If I turn away, you just hear the vowels. Okay, it's a yeah. So you can imagine that that will result in a lot of orientation to one another, okay, if they are actually trying to communicate. Right. Yeah. So in any case, the the solve this complication. So do you see this? Do you see like Two dolphins getting together and like kind of facing each other, clicking back and forth, or is that you see all all, all sorts of coordinating activity? They they normally, you know, I mean, and that's a difficult. I, I, if they're close enough to one another, they should hear the clicks. Right. So you will often also see them doing that, right? They'll, yeah. They'll, they'll, they'll be paired side by side, right right on each other. Yeah. So sometimes make them fun of you. Dolphin is one of the few predators that actually has the eyes to the side. Oh, interesting. Right? So, uh, you know, I, I often imagine dolphins look at us and think that we are weird right. for having an eyes on the front. You, okay. you, you, you got made fun of by some dolphins once. I, I did get made, made fun of dolphins. They were teasing yeah, 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 they were teasing me. They were Yes, I, I had that on tape. <laughs> they, were, they were like laughing at me. Okay, you know, and I, you know I, I'm not very really elegant with swimming. Okay. <laughs> No, not not compared to them. Okay, no, right. nobody, nobody is elegant enough compared to them. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, so these these guys, I had a, I really had the impression that they were laughing at me. <laughs> uh, but it is it is it is important to know that this was a population of dolphins that was not habituated to dolphins. Right. 
Okay, so dolphins that have the ability to humans, okay, actually come and make fun of you, but they don't say it in front of you, okay, then they go back. <laughs> they, back. Go, they go back, you know. <laughs> uh, like, you know, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, the groups that have uh, dolphins, uh, uh, dolphins, uh, uh, people swimming with the dolphins in the Caribbean, they usually take, well, take oh, come, come swim with the dolphins, we're going to see, see the dolphins actually going counterclockwise and all of the <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're making fun. And okay, look at the humans. Look at the humans. You know, giant like uh, <laughs> <laughs> eyes on the front of the face. What weirdos? Yeah, weirdos. Okay, their fins are split in half. Okay, I mean, just imagine you have you have their fins are split. Oh, our fins! <laughs> I don't think how beat up they are. Yeah, how do they get injured like that? Yeah, what happened to them? They can, you know, so, so uh, they also have weird teeth, right? Oh, sorry. No, no, but, but, but uh, seriously, okay. Yeah. One of the things that interests me is that how dolphins can understand body language, right? Okay, because in every aquarium in the world, they will tell you that dolphins can understand the trainer pointing at something, right? They don't have arms. Oh, right. So that wouldn't be like a naturally. Yeah. So dog it, it explained by it can, it can be explained about dogs because we've trained like we've domesticated them. Yeah, all, all we, yeah, but we've you know, but it, 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 it's interesting right. that, that that they that they understand body language of humans, even though humans are so different in 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 in, in so many ways. Mm -hmm. So that's odd. That is odd. Yes. So in. Um, is that just beyond training? Is that just beyond? Is that beyond conditioning? Like, like, as in, I don't know. Okay, I don't know if it's simply the familiarity with 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 the trainer or whatever. Right. Okay, but it's very clear that if you point at something, they turn around and they look at what you point. Fascinating. There's a, there's of course there's a famous video that's gone gone rather viral of Diana in front of the dolphin tank. Ah, yeah, that appeared uh, recently, so we had, uh, I think that would have been Bob. Bob had the habit of actually going to the window and bonking it, bonking, bonking <laughs> with, with the forehead. Okay, uh, I should mention at this point that uh, that globular structure in the front of their head that, uh, uh, that people think is their forehead is actually a mass of acoustical fat that's used in an acoustical lens oh, to actually focus sound. Like sperm whales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're also passive, right? They're all whales, right? So they all have the same thing. The, the skull is swept further back, okay? So he's not actually hitting uh, the, the, the window with his skull. He's hitting it with a, with a soft fat structure. Right. Okay, so, so you know. But, yeah, so, so it, it, it was funny that Bobo was trying to... Hey, look at me, look at me. So in any case, that, that viral video is of my dear friend and close collaborator. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, and then, and then, and then or another thing that was positive, I think this was you uh, between you and you and Jim Hudsmith, I'm not sure what you know, but the teeth that the teeth are separated. Yeah, this is not a local observation. This, this is somebody else who observed that, and I read it and was pretty. Oh, okay. Came by, by yeah. okay. But I can't remember the reference. I, you know, wait, wait. Well, you, but I'm sure, I'm sure people. It's, 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 an, important, it's an important, it's an important observation that 
dolphins have equal equal space teeth. Equally sized, equal space. Equally sized, equal space yeah. teeth. Okay, a lot of them. And if you look at the dolphin mandible, okay, there's this perfectly regular array of teeth. Right. Okay. And it's in the literature, it's been in the literature for decades. I'm trying to remember who uh, was the reference. I'm, I'm sorry. If I, if, I, I if, if you figure it out later, I can on the YouTube video, I can put a little pop up window. Okay, put, put something. Yes, yeah. it will be handy. Okay, so so it's been hypothesized that the regular arrangement of the teeth is actually used as an acoustical diffraction barrier. Right. So that there is directional sensitivity to sounds coming in the ultrasound range because if you compute what the corresponding wavelengths of sound would be for that spacement of teeth, okay, it comes out to something like 50 kilohertz right smack in the middle of the frequency of the regulation. Right. The width, the size so, of teeth implies yes. a width in the it implies a wavelength for diffraction. Exactly. Which implies ultrasound. Well, exactly. And you know, and given that uh, and I'm not sure if this is an original of my own speculation, okay, you know sometimes these things sometimes sometimes that, yes, they don't, you know, I mean, you read something that makes you think of something and it's not clear who you know. Who well, you know, I mean if you look back, that's a better that's a better. Uh, but what it immediately made me think of is the fact that we have this sensitivity to high, free, high frequency in our teeth. Okay, as anybody mm. has seen somebody scratching a, 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 white, a, a blackboard nose. Right. Okay. Uh, there's this uh, there's this uh, sensitivity to uh, to sounds in the teeth. Okay? Right. So uh, yeah, and, and and so so there's a right. And then I'm trying to think. There's there's one other there's one other dolphin story that's interesting, which is you had a relative that was saved by a dolphin. Yeah. So so uh, that is something that it, it, it's in the lore of of dolphins. It, it it's been known since the time of the Greek right. that uh, dolphins rescue drowning humans. Yeah. What's, what's that about? Uh, well, I don't know what that Just is about. You know, but you know, I, I, know, I do know. I do know that Just, my, you know. I mean, remembering. You know, you know. This is a story of my childhood. My uncle was swept away by by by, by a riptide. This was in La Plata. In a, this was in a coastal town uh, in Argentina. Okay. Okay. Uh, so he was swept away uh, uh, by uh, by a riptide. Yeah. And then he was trying to come back to shore, but he didn't do it properly. He didn't, you know, towards the riptide. So he was getting washed and washed and washed. Was getting a diet and started having, you know, like uh, like cramps and everything. Okay, and then all of a sudden, a, a dolphin comes out and starts, you know, hitting him with the with his, with his head. And he was in the beginning, he was terrified until he sees that the dolphin is actually pushing him towards the shore, and the dolphin pushed him as you know to the point that he could actually stand uh, on his feet uh, on the bottom and then just turn away and left. Right. And uh, and this is a, this is a, a behavior that caused uh, dolphins to be so uh, killing a dolphin in 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 in, uh, in Athens was was penalized with death because dolphins saved drowning sailors. Right. Okay, and so they were understood to be beneficial beneficial spirits. Okay, that shouldn't be killed. Mm. And uh, and uh, uh, you know I grew up knowing that this is a fact, not fiction. Right. Okay. My my uncle was 
totally black and blue the next day, okay? But, as you can imagine. But saved from but saved from drowning, okay? The dolphin is pushing. And, and, uh, and I know this sounds like a this sounds like a goofy question, but like but like dolphins dolphins if I I'm trying to imagine I think the word we we've used before is umwelt. So I'm imagining like the mindset of a dolphin when you try it. Fail here. It, they when they get beached, they die, right? When they get when they get pushed to the shore, they die. Well, it would be uh, very hard to push a dolphin onto the beach without its consent or something. Yeah, yeah. So beaching behavior is a behavior that's very voluntary, unnatural. Uh, well, I wouldn't call it voluntary, no. but it has some degree of suspension of their wheel or something or other, okay, I, I uh, you know, and this is, uh, there's, there's a lot of debate in the, in the, in the community about this. Okay? As you know, whether or not they get just depressed early? Well, it's unclear, okay, because we see dolphins beaching in themselves right. in order to catch fish, okay, right. and then they, they do that and then they come back, just by themselves, okay, and... Well, how do they get back? Was there Not elephant seal status, but yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they 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 they're powerful and they can they they, they can move. So yeah. probably they go to the level that they know. But it, it would be it would be really you know it would be really difficult to think that the dolphin would be catching whales or this sort of thing. Okay, I mean right. they, they they know their stuff. Right, they really know their stuff. I mean, there's yeah, you know. So for instance, there's these behavior that this community behavior that has been established over generations okay uh, um, it's in the in the indic ocean there's this community in which uh, nobody knows exactly how it started okay but there was a, a group of dolphins that brought a large number of fish and ended up getting the fish directly into the nets of some uh, some, uh, some fishermen Okay, and the fishermen share the fish with the dolphins. Okay, and now every year they come back. Right. Okay, uh, this is by now obviously a culturally transmitted uh, behavior. Okay, right. but by now they've been renewing the members of this thing, but they have this association in which uh, dolphins envelope schools of fish. Okay, and they push them straight into the nets of the fishermen, and then the fishermen share uh, with the dolphins. Oh, that's so cool. happy. Okay, and there is this cooperative behavior for hunting. Dolphins evolve these uh, these hunting strategies everywhere, okay, uh, and they are absolutely fascinating to look at. Okay, so uh, the idea that the dolphin would accidentally beach himself, okay, is a little is, far fetched. Is a little far fetched. Okay, we, we now we know that whales uh, end up uh, end up uh, beached, okay, and that has been correlated with tests of different sonars by the Navy and so on and so forth. So there have been huge investigations about this and, uh, and the, the Navy is uh, now very conscientious about whether they actually conduct or do not conduct sonar tests. Okay? Right. Uh, uh, these are animals that communicate over ranges of miles underwater. They have extremely sensitive hearing. If you damage their hearing, uh, it could Create some kind of well, you could create some kind of trauma that well, uh, one of the greatest pains for any one of the greatest types of pain for humans is social shunning. 
surest, most surefire way to torture a human psychologically is to yeah. cut them off from all their friends, which is, you know, we could probably make a lot of COVID statements based on yeah. that. Um, but yeah, and so it's, it's wouldn't be far fetched to me to think that if you damaged uh, the hearing of a whale and you know, they were suddenly cut off from communication with their friends, yeah, that would be. Pretty painful. Yeah, we, we, we don't know whether it's uh, whether there's actual pain to the structure, social pain or a combination thereof. Okay, uh, people have thought that in the delicate structures of the cochlea, you could even have a, a, you know a production of bubbles acoustically. Okay, that could damage the structure and cause pain. We we really don't know. Okay, right. You know, people are actively studying, and we can probably get in touch with somebody who knows about. But this brings me to something that I think is really interesting. Um, when, when we talk about problem solving, one of the, the first step of problem solving are the four Fs, mm-hmm. um, which are finding a problem, framing it such that it appears solvable, um, and then uh, figuring out the solution and then getting funding for your solution. Mm-hmm. Um, what you, I think you more than a lot of uh, a lot of scientists um, that I know understand the power of the anecdote. Um, if, and I, I think that this is, I think sometimes the anecdote is underappreciated often in science. It's like an anecdote is, is immediately dismissed. Um, whereas, you know, I think perhaps the correct, uh, the difficult thing is figuring out how to find good anecdotes and use them as clues to find good problems. And if you, you use bad anecdotes, you're going to find bad problems. So maybe maybe so uh, talk about that. Yeah. So my own thesis advisor once remarked that uh, the process of uh, me coming to his office and telling him, you know, what I was working on, which is something we did regularly, uh, even in the case in which I was stuck in the middle of extrapolation, was because. He remarked, okay, the natural state of physicists is to be stuck. Right. That's the ground state. Right. And every now and then, episodically, you get unstuck, you make a lot of progress in a brief moment, and then you get stuck somewhere else. This was Leo Karadoff. This was Leo Karadoff. Yes. (laughs) Who was uh, uh, not just uh, good about uh, physics, he was uh, remarkably wise about how uh, physicists do their job. Okay, and how do they do their job more or less effectively? And so what he said is, my job as an advisor is to make sure that you're not stuck in something trivial that I could help you with. Right. Right? And uh, uh, this assumes that you have, and this is something that works well in physics because there's such an established body of knowledge, okay, that uh, you understand what the problems to be solved. Okay? Uh, the issue comes when you go into these interfacial disciplines like between physics and biology, between, in my case, physics and now pathology and animal behavior, okay, uh, what exactly are the problems we're trying to solve, okay? I am not trying to solve the problems that animal behavior people already are solving, okay? They know how how to do that better than me, they've been trained all their lives, Okay, I'm not gonna just you know waltz in and beat them waltz in and beat their own game. Okay, that's just not gonna happen. Right. Okay. It, it, 
what's going to happen is that they're going to find the game just outside their fence. Right. Okay, and try to beat them there. Right. Right. You're, if you can't beat the game that exists, make a new game. But that yeah, go 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 to, to go to an area that's next board, okay? Right. And in that kind of an area, finding your bearings is difficult. And that's right. what I think kind of goes up here. So this is in the context uh, you know, you might want to to say it again for for for, for our audience that uh, there's a very popular saying in science that data is not the plural of anecdote. Right. Right. So uh, we we say okay, you have some anecdotal observations. Okay, that does not amount to a well constructed model. Right. And that's absolutely correct. Absolutely. Okay. But on the other hand, okay, anecdotes tell you what you should be looking at, okay, and how to construct the study. Right. So they should be suggesting to you, hey, pay attention to this. Mm. Okay. So, uh, so uh, single occurrences of things, okay, are, are, are rather important to, to, to look at, okay. Right. And in particular, in my work with dolphins, okay, in the, the few years I've been looking at them, okay, so many things have happened only once. Right. That it, you know, and therefore are strictly speaking anecdotes that I I don't know what to what to make of that. Okay, but it, it's very very clear that there's a lot we don't know or understand about their world, about their uh, their perception of the world, the the, the the way they live. Okay, that's that's extremely important. And this ties back to communication. Okay, coming back to the original subject you were pointing out because. When you communicate, you want to communicate your predicament. Right. You want to communicate your reality. And therefore, that communication has to do with how you see the world. Okay, I mean, it's intrinsically tied to it. Okay, you can't communicate. Okay, I mean, you, you can't expect a, a dolphin to, to uh, communicate things that a human could necessarily comprehend. Okay, because it's very hard to imagine what it would be to be an echolocating being with eyes on your side, okay, that can point independently of each other, okay? Right, yeah. This is the umbelt idea, right? Yes, yes, so, it, so it's a very different, uh, and... It's, it's umbelt, U-M-V-E-L-T? Yes. Yeah. So, people Google. so uh, I have this uh, these, uh, interesting, uh, I did this interesting exercise once, there is this uh, list of words called the Swadesh list. Yeah. Okay. That is used by linguists to assess the phylogenetic distance between uh, uh, different languages. Right. Okay. And it has to do with the idea that very commonly uh, used words evolve at different speeds from words that are uncommon. Mm. Okay. And that uh, therefore you should look at certain classes of words and when Swadesh compiled the list of the most used words, he has a list of a hundred words that you can look up in Wikipedia. Right. And I went through them one by one to notice that less than half are applicable to a Right. So what are some good examples? Uh, drinking. Drinking. Dolphins don't drink. Dolphins only get their water from the fresh water in the flesh of the fish they eat. Right. They do not drink because there is no fresh water in their environment. Right. Now, of course, certain languages, and I, I know this isn't, this isn't supposed to be a counterexample by any means, but, 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 cer but certain, uh, I know in Bengali, mm -hmm. they, they 
så liksom ska jag tomma. Men så då då är tom tomar kan se att tomma vi vill nog inte tomma för drink. Så jag säger never mind. So it's not but it's, it's so, consuming water, yeah. consuming food is the same thing. But, but yeah, so it, they might have an idea. They would probably have a word for consume. Yeah, so uh, obviously they will know what to eat is okay, but for instance, what is a path? Oh yeah, this one you walk on. You're, if you're a 3D, essentially flying creature, like no. a dolphin. Uh, no yeah, so what, what, what is a path? What's sitting? Fire, ashes, all of these words are in the, the Swedish list. Fire, uh, yeah. Fire, fire is a very yeah, common not gonna yeah. Ashes is a very common word. Not gonna come up. Not gonna come up, okay, they've never seen ashes. Yep. Okay, or the result of fire, okay. Uh, rain, what is rain to dolphin? Okay, something that happens up there in the surface. Yeah. Right, that you hear from underneath, okay, it's like, you know. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be nearly as important to a dolphin if Well, I don't know, it's like rain on a rooftop, okay, but, uh, um, you know, uh, so uh, you have all of these uh, things of the world, okay, that the more you think about it, you realize how incredibly dif- different it is, okay, they don't, they, they don't have a house, right, they don't, they don't sleep in nests, okay, right, they, they are just there, okay, they, they just, they just sleep float, like, Yes, they sleep, uh, uh, so they have a, semi, a, a hemispheric sleep in which only uh, uh, only one half of the brain sleeps at a time and they take turns. Uh, because of How course, they they're, well, they are, they are voluntary. Well, I can use that for grad school. Uh, oh, don't you? So, It's been it's been known in humans in situations of stress. Yeah, and it's been documented in birds too. So well, humans have done this. It's been documented. Oh, oh, it's 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 well known. Uh, uh, people in the in the trenches in World War One, okay, were seen, okay, sleeping with one half and the other half awake. Okay, oh, and wow. there is no stress. Okay, they can do that. So it's easier for dolphins because they have a smaller corpus callosum by comparison. Sleep with okay. one eye open is actually. Yeah, so it's an expression, right? So dolphins do this regularly because they are voluntary breathers. So they cannot breathe if they are if they don't do it by choice, okay? Right. Because obviously it would be deadly to take a gas underwater. Right. So uh, so they're voluntary breather, and uh, if they sleep or And that's one of the problems. If you need to do a major operation on the dolphin, you can't anesthetize. Just they'll suffocate. They suffocate. Okay, you have to intubate them. Okay, or else you cannot. If they have some massive internal hemorrhage or anything, it's very, very, very hard to do. Right. So, uh, so they they sleep with one 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 side. Okay, and they are just you know floating around near the surface. Okay, they can't be lying on the bottom to sleep. Right. Because they would die. Right, so they have to be on the surface and therefore at the mercy of currents. So by definition, they don't have a place where they live. They don't have a home, they right? Don't have a house, okay? They don't have to be able to sit. You know, it's it's uh, you know. I mean, so all just, these words that we yeah. that we kind of rely on as our top 100 most famous. You know, Call yeah, so, 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 so no. the, what this tells you is that if we ever are going to understand this, the, 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 the speech, okay, we need to understand the, the world, right? Okay, because we are not going to be able to, to mechanically translate. Very Nigelian. Yeah. 
So how are we doing on time? I don't know how we're doing on time. It's 209, I think we think we've hit our point. Okay. That was that. So do we want to wrap it up in some fashion or do you just edit? Well, um yeah, I think basically um I mean I truly thank our we, we should thank our audience, I suppose. Yeah. I haven't I guess I haven't thought about th- th- this far how oh, to end the oh. episode. Yeah, how to end the episode. Okay. So, so just uh, uh, you, you go ahead. <laughs> so, you know, I would like to thank everybody who's been patiently listening to this point. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we, uh, we clearly uh, uh, like chatting and the sound of our voices. Okay. <laughs> Happy if you, uh, if you actually made it this far. Yeah. Okay. And I wish you the best uh, of luck with your, with your interviews and your episodes. Yeah. Thank you for being my first guest. Getting the first guest is, you know, has to be the hardest thing. And um, you know, I, I really appreciate you supporting me and trying to try to move this endeavor forward. It was a pleasure. All right. Okay. Thank you.